Kia ko Gwen toko ingoa, and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in the world of local government and democracy in New Zealand. Welcome to episode 5 of Local Aotearoa, where first I apologise for the long wait between episodes. As I warned, uh, writing and recording this podcast is dependent on what's going on in the rest of my life, and since the last episode, which I think was around about Labour weekend, I've had a fair bit going on with my wife starting a new job, lots going on at council here in Kapiti. Uh, I'm working on two annual reports in terms of the sort of contracting work I do, and uh, my oldest boy turned five this week, so we had a big birthday party for him, which was a whole lot of fun. Pokemon was the theme this year, so uh, I'll be interested to see how long that phase lasts lasts for. He already knows more about Pokemon than I ever did. Now, if that's not enough, though, going on in my own life, uh, there's actually been lots of news going on in the local government sector too. And for today, we're going to focus on those uh, all these announcements that have been going on. There's been announcements around housing, around transport, around the Three Waters reforms, and a whole lot of other little uh, bits and pieces that are floating about too. Originally, I had planned to start tackling the uh, Resource Management Act in terms of sort of, I guess, putting the pieces together for local government, but there's been so much going on that I think uh, we'll kick that for touch for now because that's going to be quite a big piece of work on its own, um, and we'll focus on all these big developments that are taking place. So where to start? Well, as I pointed out in episode 3, one of the big questions looming over the Three Waters reform was whether the government would make participating in the four new multi-regional entities compulsory, especially with a number of councils either opting out or indicating that they were likely to opt out of these new entities. On 27 October, Local Government Minister Nanaa Mahuta announced that the reforms would be made mandatory for all councils, with the earlier announced working group uh, that you talked about that was going to look at the governance arrangements, they would continue their work and they would recommend improvements to that model, and that would be in order to improve local accountability and representation while still maintaining that necessary separation that's required by the rating agencies in order for these new water entities to be able to borrow independently of the councils that still ultimately will own them at the end of this. Uh, Likewise, there's some other technical groups at work too. One of them's the Rural Supplies Working Group, and they're all looking, I think, to report back around the end of the first quarter of 2022. Now, as you might expect, this announcement has generated a pretty sizable backlash, uh, with it being described as confiscation and asset grab and so forth. Um, There's also been support for the announcement too, noting that it was a difficult decision, but it was one that needed to be made, as the status quo of how water is being managed around the uh, the country isn't sustainable. Now in order to implement this, the government is going to need to introduce legislation to create these entities, to transfer assets, um, to bypass any restrictions and councils, standing orders around the councils, and to amend the Local Government Act. As I mentioned in the previous episode on this, the likes of National and Act have committed to repealing the new Three Waters entities and hand these assets back to councils, while still possibly retaining some of those new regulatory standards that are going to be in place as a result of this overall reform package. So this reform still has to survive the 2023 general election, um, though it's really, I think, important to note that it actually becomes progressively more difficult to unwind things without going through this whole process again. Um, 
And that's something to bear in mind when you hear parties talking about, oh, we're going to repeal this. Because by the time the 2023 general election rolls around towards the end of 2023, you've got to bear in mind that we're going to be sort of only 12 months away from these new entities actually taking over assets from councils. So there's questions about that. Uh, if, you've, if you're if you interested in the parties that are making claims around how they would repeal it, is asking, well, how are you going to handle this? You know, you're going to be a fair way along this. Is it the right model? Um, and there's also questions about how those parties would actually address the systemic issues that have gotten us to this point of needing a reform and needing something to change if they did hand things back. And it's not entirely clear um, from the parties that have opposed this about what they would do differently for local government. There's also various petitions that are in the public arena. Um, there's joint letters being penned to the Prime Minister. And I think uh, three councils, Timaru, uh, Waimakariri and Fungarev, off the top of my head, um, they're heading to the High Court over the issue. Uh, I'm not quite sure what they're hoping to achieve there because the government can literally just legislate their way around this. Uh, so I, I don't know about that being... a what the rate pay, well I suppose the rate payers probably would support it because there is a lot of opposition out there I think there's a um, there's a news hub read research poll last night that suggested a pretty high level of opposition currently but a lot of people also don't understand the three waters um, someone I, I can't think of who it was joked that in Wellington the three waters are uh, still sparkling and brown as it's running down Gusney Street anyway as I mentioned before there's a timeline of all these three waters uh, reforms and the new entities being in place around about 2023, 24, 25, depends how things go. Uh, but as you can imagine, there's a lot to sort out and there's a lot of highly technical stuff to go on. So if you'll excuse the pun, there is a lot of water to go under the bridge on this. Now for a bit of perspective on this, there was an interesting op-ed from uh, stuff journalist Andrea Vance recently. And she made the point that despite all of the uproar you're seeing in the media, Three Waters isn't likely to be the election deciding issue that people think it is. She draws parallels with the partial privatisation of state assets under John Key during the second term of the 5th National Government. Now notably, John Key campaigned on that policy during the 2011 election and it didn't hurt Nationals' result then. And likewise, in the second term, there was a citizens-initiated referendum that produced an a result that was overwhelmingly opposed to the partial asset sales. In 2014, John Key romped home to a historic election victory. So while Three Waters is going to continue to be a really topical issue until that legislation is passed, and it's likely to be very prominent during next year's local authorities, local authority elections, how much it's going to persist beyond there as a vote changer for the 2023 general election is really difficult to tell. But the bark of opponents may be much worse than their bite at the ballot box. As to where I sit on it, uh, obviously being an elected member myself, but this is very much my personal view and not uh, councils, uh, Kapiti Coast District Council's view, is that I agree that the Three Waters reform isn't perfect as it's proposed, but I also think it's better than the status quo for the country as a whole. Now given that's the pitch central government is making, that this is about equity and um the safety of water and the appropriate treatment of it and, and those sorts of things across all of Aotearoa New Zealand, then it's actually appropriate that they've made that decision at the national level rather than putting it back on local government and putting us, as I've said before, in this really untenable position of having to pick between a national level benefit or a local level one. 
On some of the most contentious issues, central government is carrying out more work with local government. As I mentioned, especially this is around the representation arrangements and governance on the entities, um, also around specific, so gnarly technical questions around those rural water supplies. And so there is actually that commitment to still do work on this as well as we go ahead. One area that I don't think central government has done very well on this is with communicating things. Now, they've engaged fairly extensively with local government. Um, you'll hear some people in the sector claim that they haven't. Uh, and Local Government New Zealand, which is the uh, sector organisation that sort of lobbies and represent, makes representations on behalf of us um, as a sector to the government, they've been caught in the middle of this. Um, and I think they've been copying some unfair criticism because they've been trying to get a seat at the council and they've got, the, I guess, those high-level national connections to try and influence a policy. And they've sort of uh, got themselves in a bit of a tricky position there. But I think it was a position that was they had to be there to try and influence the reforms. Um, so I think a lot of the, I guess, the uh, the criticism of local government New Zealand, I think, has been a bit unfair on them. I think they've generally done a, a pretty good job of trying to provide uh, unbiased advice to councils about this. But the problem is that a lot of the engagement from central government, just because there is a lot of it, it isn't necessarily the same as good engagement. And I think there is a bit of frustration in the sector about whether their concerns have been heard, or and now that because of what's happened, they are a bit sceptical about whether they're going to be addressed through these working groups and those sorts of things. Now that public advertising campaign that's been talked about a lot, this was um, the cartoon characters and that sort of thing, that I think poisoned the well, especially from local government's perspective in terms of the good faith perspective that they thought central government was taking to this. And that I think that um, advertising campaign, there's something like $3.4 million that have been spent on it, or something in that order of things I think I heard the other day anyway. Um, I think that campaign is going to become a textbook example of how to not win friends and not influence people because it really did get this all off on the wrong foot when it sort of got some public profile. And an underlying issue with this whole Three Waters reform, I think, was a political miscalculation by central government. And I think that they genuinely believed that on the back of all these widely publicised water issues around the country, and combined with the massive rate rises that a whole lot of councils have had to put into their long-term plans, not just this year, but also in the next few years as well. Um, I, think the, so I think central government was sort of counting on communities around the country having lost confidence in their councils and would have been happy to see um, an asset as important as water taken off them. But unfortunately, the opposite has proven to be true. And I often describe it when I'm talking to people as communities don't necessarily have any particular love for local government. Um, but at least when the next election comes around, they can fire us if they feel we're not performing. They can vote us out of office. And it's that thought of losing that direct accountability, which is something that they're not comfortable with yet. Again, with all that being said, I'll point back to Andrea Vance's op-ed, which I believe is pretty close to how things will play out. There'll be a lot of noise for the next 12 months, but other more traditional concerns are going to end up dominating voters' minds for that 2023 general election. There'll be things like economy, health, education, the environment, the COVID 
response if it's still um, going on in two years' time. Let's hope not. Let's hope we're back to something resembling proper normal by then. So the next big piece of news for local government was the bipartisan announcement from Labour and National of this Resource Management Enabling Housing Supply and Other Matters Amendment Bill. And that caught everyone by surprise, but especially local government. So without going into all the ins and outs of the bills, essentially what this bill proposes is that if you're defined as belonging to what's called a Tier 1 Urban Authority, so that's the major metropolitan cities um, and the, out, I guess, uh, outlying uh, councils that are sort of attached to them, if this bill was passed, as is, then the general residential zones in those district plans will essentially become standardised across the country. On each lot, effectively, the owner will be able to build uh, three dwellings up to around 11 metres tall without a resource consent. Uh, you can go one metre taller, I think, if you've got an approved sloped roof. So you could effectively get um, you know, three, possibly four storeys in there if you're, you've designed it very well. Um, though the caveat with this is that you've still got to meet various uh, setbacks and minimum coverage provisions. So that it doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, that every lot is going to have three dwellings of roughly three stories on it, or that you can subdivide your lot and have this like babushka doll situation where you progressively get smaller houses and smaller lots and and so forth. You, there's still minimal minimum provisions in there that you've got to be able to meet. Now, in the weeks since that announcement, there's been a bit more time to digest the bill obviously not much time because it is going through parliament quite quickly there's been a truncated um, submission process and select committee hearings have been taking place uh, over the last week and they've been quite interesting viewing and if you're following them on twitter quite interesting reading as well um, and there are some genuine criticisms arising uh, and it's not least around the fact that central government didn't involve local government in developing this uh, i think central government will take the view that they feel that local government has been too much of a roadblock in housing and that's why they didn't involve us local government probably says well central government hasn't supported us to enable more housing so there's always that give and take there um, but so councils have sort of scrambled to get their submissions together and they've been presenting to it and there's been um there's been some interesting interesting feedback provided i think in terms of what's coming to light in the select committee process i would say that for carpety coast district council um because of the timing of our council meetings and whatnot, we weren't able, as a council, able to approve the submission before it got put in. We uh, just got an update on it at the council meeting immediately afterwards. So uh, <clears throat> it's a submission that was uh, endorsed by the governing table, as it were. Um, but there are some genuine, quick, I think there are some genuine things that they want to see improvements on there, even if I don't personally agree with all the feedback that was in that submission. But that that's life on those sorts of things. Now, my personal view on the bill as a whole is that I think it's a good thing. There's devil in the detail in terms of uh, overriding provisions and district plans and what local communities think of those. But councils have been a source of holding back or restricting the enablement of additional housing supply. Uh, I think we've seen this across the country. There's, I'm sure everyone knows someone who's had a hell of a time dealing with their local council over getting resource consent or building consent and going through that process. Um, quite often it's not council's fault, it's the fault of the person who's actually trying to do it, isn't familiar with the process and um, 
it's just the issues of navigating it. But this is generally designed to simplify that process. But I think this mentality from local government, um, it's been illustrated in some of the submissions we've been seeing from councils. Uh, some of them, I would say, actually verge on the absurd. I saw one example from another council, and I'm not going to name who, but I'm sure people who are on Twitter will pick, figure this out pretty quickly. It's where the planners had sort of illustrated, and there's a very sarcastic quotation marks. I realise you can't see this in the world of podcasting. Um, but they'd illustrated the difference between what they felt central government's legislation would create in their um, cities uh, and what their proposed changes would allow to be built. And so the central government one was these bleak, barren cityscapes of no greenery, no grass, no trees, if the legislation goes through as it is. But then magically, but only with this council's proposed changes, suddenly people plant trees, suddenly they sow grass, and suddenly there's green outdoor spaces. I think that was a bit ridiculous. Because you look around the world, and um, three-storey dwellings aren't dense. They're not, for the rest of the world, they're not considered dense um, in terms of uh, in terms of housing density and even you know the proposals we've got in terms of minimum distances and that are much more generous than what you get overseas anyway so the idea that you're going to have this bleak barren concrete jungle created as a result of this I think is patently absurd and I think some planners councils planners probably should take a hard look at themselves in terms of what they're putting forward but there are genuine concerns about this proposal and one of the big ones is around how councils are going to pay for the additional infrastructure required to support more housing especially as many councils will be currently collecting development contributions uh, when there's a resource consent for for something now because resource consents won't necessarily be required for a lot of this stuff if the legislation goes through as it is, then there's a question about where do councils actually go and collect those contributions now? How do they do it? Uh, there's also a debate about what level you set them at and whether that's actually enough to, to cover the cost of the infrastructure you're doing. But this is a universal issue with local government funding and it's something that needs to be addressed more broadly anyway, especially with the Three Waters reform and the Resource Management Act reforms uh, taking place as well. So rather than using infrastructure funding as a reason for opposing the legislation, I think the trick is to use this as a push for big changes to the way that local government is funded. This is a huge opportunity um, for us to really make some fundamental changes in the way that local government actually is financed so that it is sustainable, so that we can provide the infrastructure. Now there's always a bit of a chicken and egg situation about this that uh, funding councils to provide infrastructure where there isn't demand risks money being wasted if you're building it far too soon and sits there idle doing nothing. Um, but on the converse side, if you're, um, if you're having to play catch up with that infrastructure, then you get issues too. So, you know, I don't think anyone's under illusions, least of all central government, about the need to provide that additional infrastructure. So that's something that I think we will see tackled. I don't, I don't think the state of moral panic we're seeing from some councils is really helping. I think it's a bit political, to be perfectly honest. Because um, I think looking at some of the work that um, Kaunga Ora is doing at the moment, and they're very um, 
upfront about some of the big infrastructure costs that they're paying in terms of putting in especially water infrastructure to service their big developments. So government, central government's much more aware, I think, than they have been in the past in terms of this stuff, but it's a question of how that flows on in terms of the uh, broader reforms, reforms in local government that are taking place. But it's also really worth pointing out here that all of the new dwellings enabled by the legislation, whatever its final form is, won't appear overnight. It takes time to train the additional builders, to increase the manufacturing capacity for building materials. Um, and not least of all, these new dwellings still need building consents, they still need architects. Uh, there's even the question about um, the availability of financing from banks for all these sort of, I guess, small scale developments that I imagine a lot of mum and dads will be looking to do on their lots. And I won't lie, I, you know, we sit on an 800 square metre section where we are, and we've thought in the past about putting a second house on this, um, but this sort of thing would allow us to put three houses on here, and we could build one on the front part of our section, move into that, demolish our existing one, put the other two in here, and it would be fantastic. But there's questions around the actual how you finance that, getting all the capacity and the building capacity and that sort of thing. So there is a whole lot of restrictions, or I should say constrictions in terms of that um, capacity coming online, and that needs to come on stream before these houses start popping up in the type of numbers that are really going to cause issues for infrastructure capacity, I think. And I think the government's own projections about how many houses are going to be built within the next sort of four to eight years are probably a bit optimistic in that regard, given those uh, supply and skills constraints. Of course, that challenge is around ensuring the sequencing of the new infrastructure to coincide as it growth ramps up, and making sure you've got that sustainable funding in place to enable it. And that has to follow on so rapidly from this change, otherwise you're introducing just another bottleneck to new housing supply. Now in theory all this should come out of that review into the future for local government. Um, they have a remit to, to uh, look into the funding and financing of local government and I'll talk a little bit more about some of their work that's come out recently. Um, but that's where you'd think that would get addressed. Now on transport now, I told you there was a lot of announcements going on, but there have been a couple of really big announcements. Now the first of these was around Auckland Light Rail. Now there had been another working group uh, that had been set up and they had investigated three options for light rail in Auckland. There was light rail, uh, which is similar to the tram systems you find in places say like Melbourne or what Sydney's recently put in. Uh, light Metro, which as the name suggests is something similar to, but not quite, say a London or Paris style metro underground system. Um, I guess a little bit scaled more back. And then there's what they call tunnelled light rail, which is basically a hybrid between um, trams and a metro. Now the working group's preferred option is that final one, which is tunnelled light rail. And it comes in with a pretty hefty price tag of $14.6 billion. Now I'm not going to dive into the pros and cons of each option, um, in part because I don't know enough about Auckland to really comment about the merits of it and how the, the routes would work and all, the, all those sorts of things. I sort of feel like this is maybe a bit of a halfway house in terms of the solution and I, my big question is about well where is this the single big integrated transport plan across all of Auckland. If you're going to do a metro, you want to think about how you're going to connect that metro up across the rest of the city 
over time. You're not realistically building every line straight away, but you want to have an idea about how it all integrates going forward. Um, and that's a thing. Uh, I I know some groups have put ideas out there in terms of how that could look. And um, Greater Auckland is one group which I think have done some pretty interesting thinking around that. And actually, they've got some quite interesting discussion going on on their um on their website about the various issues around all the different options here so they're well worth a google if you want to get some perspective on what the uh the pros and cons of each idea are in terms of auckland light rail uh, now the other big announcement in terms of transport was much closer to home for me and that was with the four options for let's get wellington moving in terms of the wellington city mass rapid transit stuff being revealed for consultation now again, I'm not going to go into into deep detail around all the options, even though I know a whole lot more about uh, the Wellington City experience, having uh, grown up there and lived there. But the big news was the dropping of light rail to the airport in all four options. Now that was a surprise, given that light rail to the airport had been the big driver for the whole program of work that led to Let's Get Wellington Moving. Now the rationale given for its replacement with what's called bus, rap bus rapid transit on the route, the eastern route out to the airport from the CBD is uh, resilience issues which they are citing uh, would prevent the types of urban intensification needed in terms of what they're looking for let's get Wellington moving to enable along the various transport corridors they're looking at. Now the issue I have with that as I said, is that the big reason for light rail to the airport wasn't ever about urban intensification. It was about removing a significant portion of the traffic to and from the airport from that corridor. Now currently, Wellington Airport is projecting passenger numbers to reach about 12 million per year by 2040. That's nearly double their pre-COVID uh, passenger numbers. Now depending on what your average vehicle occupancy rate you're using and what assumptions you make in terms of how people commute uh, from or through the Wellington CBD to get to the airport, there's at least likely to be something like 10,000 car trips a day uh, to and from the airport to the CBD and back each day, if not significantly more. So if passenger numbers do double, assuming there's no other changes, seeing that sort of vehicle movements hit 20,000 days along that corridor just for the airport isn't unrealistic. Especially in, in the factor in the earlier housing announcement too, and you'll get a lot more private vehicles uh, piling onto that route as well. So the challenge really is to ensure that whatever option is picked for that eastern corridor or that heads out to the airport and out to um, Miramar and through um, Kilburnie and uh, to Strathmore and Seatoon and whatnot, you want to ensure that that is future-proofed to enable light rail to be easily implemented as soon as funding becomes available. Now in an ideal world, you do it all now, as we urgently need to reduce our reliance on private vehicles for journeys like that to and from the airport. Um, but as a politician, I am painfully aware of the political realities are always going to bite given that there are some eye-watering um, costs involved in this sort of infrastructure project and also I think the big issue and this is what I think played out in the Auckland space as well is the sort of disruption to businesses along that sort of construction route too even though afterwards the businesses that survive it do very well out of that sort of um, mass rapid transit system especially like rail you just look at Melbourne the businesses along the various tram routes here do great guns but the, the process of getting there can be very painful 
and I think that's something that I think the government is has admitted that they are looking at how they have to fund those sorts of things now in terms of uh, business disruption and I think that's where we're going to start to see much more discussion about value capture tax and that's where say there's a big infrastructure project like mass, mass rapid transit that goes through your area and when it's finished uh, having it there lifts the value of your houses by x amount the idea is that when you sell your house you pay x amount in value capture tax now Given the government lost its nerve over capital gains tax, having just a blanket one, versus the bright line test, which they did put in place, I would be surprised if a value capture tax survives um, contact with the enemy, as it were. But from my understanding anyway, there is a bit of work going on now in terms of how that might actually work in terms of funding some of these big multi-billion dollar transport projects. Now another local government news, I told you there's lots going on here. Uh, there was the big bombshell dropped on Auckland Council by the Court of Appeal where it ruled that Auckland Council's uh, accommodation provider's targeted rate was invalid. Now this was a, a big fight a few years ago. It was one of um, Phil Goff's sort of signature policies they took into I think the 2016 local body election which was a, a raising extra funds for Auckland um, and it was targeting the hotels and whatnot with a specific rate on them to uh, help what he argued was uh, the additional costs the city had to bear because of visitors who were staying at their accommodation. Now that rate had been suspended since I think 2020 due to COVID-19 but in the previous couple of years I think about 28 million had been collected from it. So a big question, now that it's been ruled as invalid, there's a big question about what happens next. Um, Auckland Council can go to the Supreme Court, which would add to legal bills of what I think are about $1.5 million, which have already been incurred defending the rate. Uh, and then if that appeal fails, then Auckland Council is obviously going to have to probably meet costs as well for um, the hotels that uh, challenge this. But the other question is, do they, will Auckland Council actually, given the rates been ruled as invalid, are they going to have to pay back $28 million? Now I'm not all, uh, I'm not across all the ins and outs of the particular case, but it does go to highlight how mindful councils have to be about the potential for legal challenges to their decisions. Uh, now here in Carpety, we went through this all about a decade ago when Coastal hazard lines were added to land information memorandums, limb reports. Um, and that was a massive court battle that went on for several years. Uh, and depending on who you ask, some people say the council won, some, the, the, I think um, some people say the uh, residents who challenged council won. I think the reality is that the court sort of, uh, they battled each other to almost a compromise solution in the court. Um, but essentially it said that council needed to do better in terms of going forward. But that's still such a sore point, And it's held up making our district plan operative until the 30th of June this year. And it's that sort of thing that um, it does, uh, it's a huge cost on the community. It costs the community twice really because obviously they're paying to challenge a decision. Um, but also they're paying effectively through their rates to also defend that decision too. So you can understand that communities get quite frustrated that this sort of thing happens. Now, we haven't actually seen the legal advice that Auckland Council 
received regarding the legality of this targeted rate when they decided to implement it. And that sort of thing could be really interesting in terms of understanding what advice they did get and what risks it highlighted for them. As to whether we'll see that, I'm doubtful, uh, but we'll just wait and see. But so often as an elected member, you're dependent on that sort of advice because you can't be a specialist across all subjects so you're relying on that sort of specialist legal advice on these sorts of things as to where you stand on them now in terms of uh, next year's local authority elections uh, moving on with our news one piece of, of news on this was that central government has removed the provisions in their latest COVID-19 response legislation that would have allowed them additional powers to uh, delay next year's local authority elections now there are still powers afforded to each local authority's electoral officer to delay elections under the Local Electoral Act and there's a range of reasons why they can do it and COVID-19 if there's a significant outbreak or something or a natural disaster is the sort of thing you'd look at that could trigger that for happening. Um, now another piece of news is you'll remember in I think it was episode three as well I talked about how local councils are required to run representation reviews every six years. Here in Kapiti, we've just completed ours, um, and the final proposal is being sent off to the Local Government Commission for their review, uh, and residents are now able to lodge objections if they want to to that. We'll get a review triggered anyway, um, because our Waikanae ward is around about 24% underrepresented in that final model. And that, that was the case with our previous, um, our initial proposal. Uh, there's some, I guess, little adjustments to bring it down a little, but that was actually the case back when we previously went through the representation review as well in 2015 from memory. Now the ward model wasn't my preferred option. I would have preferred uh, smaller wards and that would have actually addressed Waikanae's under-representation issue. But when it came to the uh, the big debate on the day, I knew that I didn't have the votes around the table ahead of time. So I sort of parked that issue because you do have to pick your battles where you're going to, to fight these things. And if you can't see... If you can't see how you're going to get the numbers for something, you focus on where you do, you can get results. So instead, what a group of us focused on was a discussion around whether we subdivided our Paraparaumu Raumati Community Board. So you'd have some representative, representatives on that, from specifically from Paraparaumu and some specifically from Raumati, um, or whether to have a separate Raumati Community Board. Now the latter was my preferred option, having that separate community board, though I, in one of the workshops earlier I said I could I could live with a subdivided one, though it wasn't my first preference. And a big thank you to our Paikakariki Raumati Ward Councillor Sophie Hanford, um, who helped uh, put this all together and drive this, and I sort of, I guess, provided some, some technical advice on the various the ways we could uh, table the amendment and get it through and over the line. Um, we managed to actually get an amendment into the final proposal to create that separate Rollmatic Community Board. So that was a nice win, um, albeit it was a very hard fought one, but that was a really, um, you know, a really cool moment, which I think uh, quite a few people in Rollmatic are quite excited about. Now the challenge is, as it is every year with community boards, is to encourage people to stand. Now while I haven't been on a community board personally, uh, and with family commitments, I'm not often able to get to their meetings because they happen in the evenings and I'm sort of dependent on when Renee gets home from work or how the boys are coping or if I've got other things on. Um, but I quite often get to watch them in action, especially when they contribute to our uh, consultations out in the community. Quite often the community board members are 
some of the most active people in terms of turning up to those and actually talking to the public or when they're, they're actually at our council table as well and they're joining us in debate. Community boards are a great way to get involved um, without necessarily having the t full time commitment of being a councillor. Uh, that'll be, you don't get the same remuneration obviously. Um, but they also offer a lot more freedom to advocate on behalf of your community. Whereas often as councillors, and because we're the, the ultimate decision makers, we can sometimes be limited in what we say because we've, we've obviously got to tread that line around predetermination. Now going back a bit further um, in terms of local government news, at the start of October it's worth mentioning that the review into the future for local government, they had their interim report released. Now I'll cover this all a bit more fully in a future episode, uh, but this interim report essentially sets the scene for what the review is going to focus on as they meet with local government stakeholders and communities and central government and whoever over around the country over the coming months. Now, while there isn't really anything new or out of the ordinary or that you wouldn't have expected in the interim report, it is actually useful from the perspective of laying out what some of the major issues facing the sector are. Now, the review panel identified five priority questions that they'll be using to consider things over the coming months. Uh, they've asked how should the system of local governance be reshaped so it can adapt to future challenges and enable communities to thrive. I'm, I'm reading verbatim from the report here. Uh, <clears throat> what are the future functions, roles and essential features of New Zealand's system of local government? How might a system of local governance embodied, embody an authentic partnership under Te Tūruti or Waitangi, creating conditions for shared prosperity and well-being? What needs to change so local government and its leaders can best reflect and respond to the communities they serve? And finally, what should local government's funding and financing to ensure viable and sustainability, fairness and equity and maximum well-being? So those are your five five priority questions. There's other things I'm looking at too, but those are, the, I guess, the five big ones. So as you can tell, it's actually a pretty broad remit they've set themselves. And if you read the report, you'll see they're taking a clean slate approach to things. And that's really good to hear, because it's useful to look at how local democracy works both here in New Zealand and overseas. But the problem is there's so many variables that you can't simply just lift a model from another country and plonk it onto New Zealand. You can't just take another model from, say, the Auckland Super City and plonk it somewhere else. It doesn't necessarily going to work like that. So having that clean slate and trying to imagine a system from the ground up, while taking into account all those other reforms being undertaken, Three Waters and the Resource Management Act, it's a really good starting point, and I'm really glad to see that's um, being reinforced through that report. Now, what I do worry about, and this has only increased from uh, watching the, I guess, the the fallout from the Three Waters announcement, is that the environment into which this review's draft recommendations are going to land in, which is currently slated for September next year, right before local body elections, about a week out from them, um, I worry that that environment might have already turned septic. Now, in part, that's always going to happen to some extent, because there are some, there is a fiercely political element to all of this, and that's just the reality of anything. I think the unfortunate thing is, is that 
because Three Waters hasn't been handled as well as it could have been, that this has become like a bonfire, and it's going to cause people to sort of dig in and fight whatever recommendations come out of this review to for now, regardless of what the merits of them may be. And the, we're seeing a lot of that sort of, I guess, entrenching of positions already happening now. And that's only going to intensify uh, in a local government election campaign next year. Now, I hope that doesn't happen, obviously. You you try to be optimistic about these things. Um, but I guess I've been around politics for long enough to know that's not usually the case. Now, for some last-minute news, just to close off today's episode, we finally had an announcement on the Wellington City mayoral race. And that was with former Green Party Chief of Staff, Tori Fano, announcing that she's going to be contesting just the mayoralty in Wellington. Now, there's a whole lot of coverage about it, because obviously, um, I think people have described it as the worst-kept secret in Wellington. Uh, not going into Wellington every day, I clearly did not know this was happening, so it was quite exciting from my perspective, at least, to see some news announced there. Um, so there's a whole lot of coverage about it last week in the from Wellington-based media. But one of my favourites was uh, from Georgina Campbell at the New Zealand Herald, who had a really good write-up about um, about the announcement. And I did I did really enjoy. <laughs> they had she put in some quick-fire questions to um, Tori Fano, and uh, the answers that um, that uh, Fano gave to those quick-fire questions, they were just they were safe. They weren't going to politically rile anything. They were, they were like, I'm just trying to think of the right word to describe it. It was what you'd teach someone in terms of a communications class. You'd teach a politician to answer those questions in those ways because they were the most unoffensive answers or unprovocative answers you could ever give to the questions, which I think um, is something probably to think of if you're an outsider and you're trying to get in. You need to generate coverage. You do need to take positions on some things. Um and not just take a view of, oh, I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm going to just listen. People want to actually know what you stand for and that sort of thing. I remember, I think I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but we had one candidate in the 2019 elections up here uh, who was running for district wide, and she had a what I thought, in terms of her pitch to voters. In terms of her professional background, in terms of what she said she was going to focus on, which was good governance, which was listening to people, which was analysing and considering risks and benefits and all that sort of stuff. It was like your textbook example of what a really competent, competency-based local governor would be. The problem was it wasn't politically any good and it didn't just didn't engage or fire up people to to vote for them and unfortunately she came last and I think it was 13 candidates which was quite unfortunate because I think she was a perfectly qualified candidate for local governance and had a lot more governance skills to bring to the table than a lot of people who make it to councils around the country but without that sort of I guess um, political element and fire in the belly and that sort of thing sort of fell flat a bit so that's something I think I don't think um, Tori Fano is going to have a problem with that because I think her background with the Green Party and that will start to come through in a whole lot of issues but it's just something if you are thinking about running um, stand for something don't just give safe answers you're there you are there once you're at the table to listen and weigh up things and do that all carefully but to get elected you do actually need to stand for something and you do need to have a position so people can understand why you're there so that's I, as I said I don't think Tori Farno is going to have that problem at all I think she's she's got a pretty good 
good um, pitch already in terms she's talking about uh, being able to build relationships and uh, get different parties to work together and that sort of talks to I guess some of the issues we've seen play out publicly around Wellington City Council though I think I've made the point publicly a few times that I think a lot of that is actually endemic to all councils it's just that Wellington City Council has a lot of media in the room and a lot of people paying attention to all of their meetings so all the dynamics that play out everywhere actually get reported on in Wellington um, I think if you had media in more council chambers around the country you'd find a lot of councils are very similar to Wellington in that regard but I think that idea of obviously I think um, she's going to have a lot of focus on environmental issues and that sort of thing but I think in terms of getting the council to work together better in the public eyes is a pretty good pitch to have at the moment in terms of where Wellington, uh, Wellington's politics is at. Anyway, on that note, that's all for this episode. Uh, hopefully there's no other big news announcements coming along. Who knows? We'll find out. Uh, but until next time, I'm Gwen Compton. This is Local Aotearoa. Harera. Authorised by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manly Street, Parapara Ume. All opinions expressed on this podcast are my personal views and not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council.